Well, will you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1? If you've not been with us, we go through the Word of God verse by verse to very carefully glean from it all that the Spirit of God has revealed. And we come now to the third part of a series on wisdom, God's versus man's. And we will be looking this morning at verses 26 through 31. Before I read the text, let me say that this particular section of Scripture has always had a profound impact on me personally because it describes me. It describes what God has done for me and to me and in me. And like perhaps no other passage in Scripture, it humbles me to the very core. I have to confess, it stirs within me a deep spring of tears that that tend to flow whenever I ponder the fact that God must have chosen me for salvation. For had he not done so, I would have never chosen him. Like no other doctrine in all of Scripture, God's sovereignty and salvation drives me to my knees in humble thanksgiving. Yea, it drives me to my face as I contemplate what he has done. To think that in eternity past, before I was even born, before he created anything, before he created time and space, the word of God says that he set his love upon wretches like me and like you. In Revelation, we read how he did this before the foundation of the world. He wrote our names in the Lamb's book of life. And then ultimately... To think that he drew me unto himself with his irresistible grace. He caused me to see my sin and the reality of the Savior and my need for him. And then to think that he saved me. And we could all share that testimony, all of us that know Christ. Amen. It leaves me speechless, just lost in the sheer wonder of it all. And with the same humbling purpose in mind for the saints in Corinth, here's what the Apostle Paul says to them in 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not. So that he may nullify the things that are. So that no man may boast before God. But by his doing... You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, it's important for us to understand from verse 18 of chapter 1 to verse 5 of chapter 2, the inspired apostle is contrasting the, the wisdom of God with the wisdom of man, all in an effort to exhort a group of very proud but immature Christians in the church of Corinth to stop dividing themselves along philosophical lines and forming cliques. Because, as you will recall from our previous studies, that was indicative of their culture. They were in love with the wisdom of man, philosophia, the love of wisdom. And that was their form of entertainment. To hear great orators, great philosophers expound upon ontology, expound upon who we are, why we are here, where did we come from, where are we going when we die, how should we relate to our gods and all of this. And so they then attached themselves to their favorite philosophers, the skilled orators that could move an audience with their lofty rhetoric, 
And naturally, this all bled into the church, and they developed very divisive uh, infatuations with their favorite spiritual leader, which only caused further polarization within the church. And so everyone had their own little take on the truth. They had brought in some of the philosophical reasoning, the wisdom of man. They kind of mixed it with scripture. And evidently, that's what Paul is dealing with here. And whenever you mix man's wisdom with God, it's like taking a little bit of poison and putting it in pure water. Now, the key that unlocks this entire section in verses 26 through 31, is found in verse 30. Let me read that to you again. He says, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Now, technically, in the original language, the grammar of this particular text indicates that the three nouns of righteousness, sanctification, and redemption are what he refers to as wisdom. In other words, it could be translated this way, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, which consists of righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Now, folks, in this one sentence, we see God summarizing the the entire section of Scripture here. By answering the most fundamental questions that philosophers labor to answer but are never able to do so. Shall we say the who, what, how, why, and where of life? And if you ask the most eminent philosophers, the most eminent scientists, the most eminent scholars, you will hear numerous conflicting answers. I've been there in academia. I've heard from some of these people, and you have as well. In fact, I was curious what Einstein said about some of this. Einstein did not believe in a personal God who concerns himself with the fates and actions of human beings, um, a view which he described as naive. But rather, he believed in pantheism that all things compose a, an all-encompassing imminent God. And in terms of life after death, he didn't believe in any of that, adding, quote, one life is enough for me. Now, folks, the key to understanding these things of course, is the word of God. You have to ask, what is my spiritual authority? Is it the word of men or is it the word of God? And if it's the word of God, then he gives us the answers as long as we know him, as long as we have been born again. If you have never been truly born again, then you do not have the indwelling spirit of God, and therefore you are unable to be convicted of sin and instruction of righteousness, And the scriptures will be just kind of bizarre and meaningless to you. In fact, Jesus said that when the spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. John 16, 8. And then also in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 14, remember the apostle Paul said, but a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He went on to say, and he cannot, not that he will not, he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Uh, uh, The Greek term anachronitai, a judicial term. It was a term that meant a person is incapable of rendering a decision in a court of law because they simply cannot recognize the facts. We know in scripture that the unsaved are spiritually dead. They just don't get it. When it comes to spiritual things, two plus two will always equal five. Or maybe six or sometimes seven and on and on it goes, but it will never equal four. So what are implied here are some questions and certainly some answers. Let me give them to you in bullet form and then I will expand upon them and we will apply them to our lives. First of all, with the question, who is God? The answer is the holy and sovereign creator. Secondly, what does he do? Well, he calls his elect and unites them to Christ by grace alone. How does he do it? He gives 
wisdom to the weak, base, and despised concerning righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Why does he do this? To save sinners and put his glory on display. And where does man go when he dies? Either heaven or hell, dependent upon what a person believes about the cross. Now, young people, I want you to listen to me. What you have just heard is more valuable than your college education. Everything that you will ever learn in life, Solomon tells us, is vanity when compared to these divine realities. And why are they so important? Because the eternal destiny of your soul rests upon how you answer those questions. Will you answer them God's way or man's way? Now, remember, Paul is exhorting the Corinthians to abandon any latent love for man's wisdom, philosophia, once again, because it was causing disunity and division in the church. But also it was robbing them of the blessings that are available to those who know and love the word of God and apply it to their life. So notice the first of the philosophical questions that are implied here and how God answers them. And the first one would be, who is God? And I've given you the answer. It's he's the sovereign. He's the holy and sovereign creator. Not one of many gods like you Greeks are worshiping. That's the idea. You will remember from our past studies that he is the holy one who has a judicial loathing of everything that is evil. He absolutely has a hatred of sin because of the misery and the death that it brings to the world. And for this reason, what did he do? He provided a remedy. He sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be the propitiation of our sin, the payment of the legal penalty of sin that eliminates a sinner's debt to the justice of God. And it is this According to verse 18, word of the cross, that is foolishness to those who are perishing. But those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Indeed, he is the sovereign ruler of his universe. The one who says in verse 19, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever. I will set aside. He is the one, according to verses 20 and 21, who makes foolish the wisdom of the world by his wisdom. He goes on to say that in the world, uh, through its wisdom, it did not come to know God. Instead, he says God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe, referring to the content of the message of the gospel. He is the one who has given us the proclamation of Christ crucified, which, according to verses 23 through 24, is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So in essence, what he's saying in this whole section is Corinthian, you Corinthian saints, and I might add, you saints at Calvary Bible Church. You need to remember this. And you need to bow down and worship the Lord your God, because indeed he is holy and he is the sovereign creator. Now, the second question, well, what does this God do? Well, he calls his elect and he unites them to Christ by his grace alone. Notice in verse 23, he describes how the message of Christ is uh, the message of Christ crucified. It's a, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But in verse 24, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, it is Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Then in verse 26, he says, for consider your calling, brethren. And you will recall, this is a reference to the efficacious or the effective call of God. That calling of God, which certainly results in the salvation of God's elect. And of course, this is an inscrutable mystery when you think about it. One that, that harmonizes God's sovereignty with man's freedom. We know at salvation, both of them are in operation, but it is God who initiates salvation and works with a human will so that it so that it will freely and voluntarily choose 
to believe in Christ and come to saving faith in him. And we know biblically that the instrument of this special call is the word of God. And the agent is the Holy Spirit. It is God who must draw, who must teach. You will recall in John 6, 44, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And then in verse 45, it is written to the prophets and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. And so naturally, the drawing and the learning require God's sovereign work. And dear friends, as soon as you try to explain or try to object to these biblical doctrines, you cease to be biblical. You will recall in John 16, 44, there was a woman named Lydia. Remember, she was from Thyatira, it said, a seller of purple fabrics. And she was listening. And then the text says, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the thing spoken by Paul. Folks, do you remember that day when you were listening? When God finally got your attention? When you really listened and the Lord opened your heart? And you trusted in Christ as Savior? You responded to, to the gospel? What a miracle that was. Now, that God calls his elect is found throughout the New Testament. For example, in 2 Peter 1.10, he says, make certain about his calling and choosing you. You will recall as well, Paul told the Thessalonian believers in 1 Thessalonians 1, beginning in verse 4, he said to remember, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. In fact, the church is commonly called the elect in the New Testament. And throughout Scripture, we see clearly that it is God who initiates salvation, not man. But by his regenerating grace and power, he causes man to participate in responding to God's promptings so that that man will receive the word. He says that later on in verse 6 of 1 Thessalonians 1. And also to turn to God from idols, as he says in verse 9. So back to the text here. Paul is saying to the Corinthian believers, consider your calling. Consider means look closely, folks. Look at your calling. And then he goes on to remind them in verse 27 that God has chosen. Notice he says that two times. God has chosen. God has chosen. Verse 28, God has chosen. Verse 30, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. God is the one initiating this so that we can be in Christ Jesus. I love that phrase, in Christ Jesus. It describes our union with Christ. And bear in mind, now, biblically, this speaks of the supernatural, vital, living union by which Christ's life becomes our life. You will recall in Galatians 2 and verse 20, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and God and gave himself up for me. Folks, this is a miracle that we never want to take for granted. God redeems us that he might inhabit us. And when he inhabits us, he begins to conform us more and more into the likeness of Christ. Bear in mind that it is our union with Christ that is the result of justification. Justification meaning that legal act whereby God declares us to be righteous because of the imputed righteousness of Christ. This is the basis of salvation and all of our blessings. Because of this, God doesn't see our sin, but he sees us clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We're hidden in Christ. We become sharers of his life, which also finds expression in our shared life in his body, which is the church. Now, mind you, 
This isn't speaking of belonging to some religious country club. But this is rather the idea of being a limb or an organ in this mystical organism of which Christ is head, the body of Christ. And this union constitutes a a oneness whereby we co-labor and we co-suffer with Christ and with one another. One theologian named Strong says this, quote, Christ does not work upon us from without as one separated from us, but from within as the very heart from which the lifeblood of our spirit flows. I want to dwell upon this for a moment because it's so precious. The spirit helps us grasp this unfathomable mystery by describing it through various figures in scripture. You will remember in Ephesians 1, He gives us the figure of the head and the body and the body of Christ that I just mentioned is pictured in first Corinthians 12. You remember in verse 27, he says, now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. When we come to Christ, we are in Christ. We are in this mystical organism, his body, and we cannot function, therefore, outside of the body, independent as independent organs, but we all must respond to the head of the body, which is Christ. And together we serve his purposes. We see as well in in chapter 7 and verse 4 that we're married to Christ. And again, in Ephesians 5, in the description of the bride and the bridegroom, in other words, we belong to him and we enjoy this, this spiritual oneness of relationship and everything that belongs to him belongs to us. And because of this, he will one day, according to Ephesians 5:27, present to himself the church. That's his bride. Present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. And then you will remember John 15 and the figure of the vine and the branches that that, that pictures that life-giving, that organic bond that we have in Christ. There is is a likeness of of nature. There is is the, the eternal impartation of spiritual life. There's the ability to bear spiritual fruit and so forth. And then there's another figure in John 6. You will recall how he speaks of the body and food. In other words, we have life by partaking of Christ, even as Christ had life by partaking of the Father, as he describes. And then John 17, he speaks of God the Father and God the Son and how we are to have oneness and sharing with them, that the triune Godhead dwells within us and we within them. And so, folks, because of our union with Christ, the Scriptures tell us that there is no condemnation In Christ, right? In Christ, we are free from the law. We possess the righteousness of God in him. We are complete in him. The dead in Christ will what? Rise first. And on and on it goes. What a magnificent truth. So, dear saints in Corinth. Those of you that are still infatuated with human wisdom, I I want to remind you of that which none of your philosophers have ever dreamed. Things that they would consider to be foolish. First of all, who is God? Well, he is the holy and sovereign creator. What does he do? Well, he calls his elect and he unites them to Christ by his uninfluenced sovereign grace alone. The third question that's implied here, well, how does he do it? Well, he gives wisdom to the weak, base, and despised concerning righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Notice verse 26. Again, for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh. Wise could be translated clever, like the philosophers that they listen to all the time. And he says, not many mighty. In other words, those who have great influence and power. Not many noble those of high status in society or of noble, royal nobility. By the way, those are three categories that the world absolutely praises, right? But they're totally unimpressive to God. 
And so basically what he's saying is, folks, I want you to look around. And by the way, we can do the same thing. Folks, I want you to look around. God did not choose to save those that the world esteems, right? He didn't choose the elite of the world so that the gospel would be fashionable, so that it would be cool, so that it would be dignified. No, God's wisdom and his standards are very different from man's. When I was thinking about this, I, my mind went to some scenarios when I was a little boy. God saved me when I was nine years old. And, and, you know, when he saves us, he begins to work in us, and you don't even realize it. But I look back, and I remember some of this. When I was a little boy and growing up, athletics came very, very easy to me. And on the playground or in the gym, wherever it was, I, I was always a captain or I would be the first one picked. You, you remember that, you know, when, when you pick up teams and you do all that type of thing? And if I was the captain, I would always love to pick the little nerdy guy standing in the back with his head down, knowing that he would probably be the last one picked if anybody picked him at all. And if I'd already picked some guys and I picked that guy, the other guys would say, oh, no, not him. Oh, no. You're laughing because we've all kind of been there, right? We know what that's like. By the way, I had lots of nerdy friends when I was growing up. But, folks, the point is that's exactly what God does. It's interesting. The Roman catacombs are a series of underground burials that span from the early 2nd century to about the 5th century A.D. And many thousands of Christians were buried there. And what's fascinating is that almost without exception, the inscriptions in the catacombs that were written by Christians have very bad grammar, and you see a lot of misspelled words, which indicates that they were... Poor, they were illiterate people. Many of them were slaves that had come to Christ. But isn't it fascinating to realize that by God's grace, they were children of the living God? That they were heirs to the kingdom of God, joint heirs with Jesus? Absolutely astounding. That they were men and women who possessed an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled. And will not fade away, one that is reserved in heaven by the power of God. So Paul's words are so powerful. It's as if he's saying, how sad to see some of you hang on to the very same standards of the world that would cause a person to exalt himself and and others. And then as you do this, you bring division and disunity into the church. It's as if he's saying, folks, you need to take a breath. You need to calm down. You need to sit back and consider your calling. Get off your high horse, as we might say. Verse 27, he says, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world. Base things referring to people of low origin. And the despised God has chosen. Despised translates a term that that refers to the nobodies of the world. He's chosen the nobodies of the world. Then he says, the things that are not. Which speaks of people that the world chooses to ignore as if they don't even exist. He's chosen those things. Why? So that he may nullify the things that are. So that no man may boast before God. By the way, it's interesting that if you study totalitarian regimes, you will see that their greatest enemy throughout history has been and always will be biblical Christianity. That's why they want to do away with it. That's why they want to get, get rid of Christians. That's why they don't want Bibles. I I saw it when I was in Russia, and I still, as I uh, stay in contact with friends in Russia, pastor friends, especially in Siberia, I hear about it all the time. In Muslim countries, you see the same thing. Because what happens is biblical Christianity confounds the wisdom of man. And by the way, that's why you see such growing animosity towards Christians even here in our country. 
He does this so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. John Calvin says, quote, here then we see that God, by confounding the mighty and the wise and the great, does not design to elate with pride the weak and the illiterate and the abject, but brings down all of them together to one level, end quote. Folks, think about the original 12 disciples. <clears throat> think about those guys. <clears throat> you know, they're... Their only remarkable qualifications were that they had no remarkable qualifications, right? It's really interesting when you think about it. In fact, if you would have looked at their yearbook, it would have said, you know, least likely to succeed. I mean, that's kind of how, what these guys were. And even after they were saved, I mean, they were still prejudiced. They, they were impetuous and hard-headed. We know that they were uneducated. They were proud, cowardly, unreliable spiritually immature, they were the most unlikely candidates. And yet this is exactly the kind of people that God loves to come upon and save by his grace. Twelve very ordinary men. John MacArthur wrote a great book on that, Twelve Ordinary Men. And think about it, only twelve. Not the religious elite, not the celebrities, not the politicians, not people with clout, but Fisherman, a tax collector, a Jewish terrorist that hated Rome, and other nondescript nobodies. What was God thinking? I mean, this is so counterintuitive. But folks, this should be an encouragement to all of us because God seeks our availability, not our ability. And he saves us by his grace. And he's going to always give us all that we need to accomplish the task that he sets before us. He empowers us by his Holy Spirit. He gifts us to do more for his glory and for our joy than we could ever possibly imagine. And beloved, never underestimate your capacity to be used by God. Your lot in life, your, your education, your, your experience, your, your gender, your socioeconomic situation, whatever it is, all of those things are utterly meaningless when it comes to your usefulness for the kingdom. What God looks for is a person who is contrite of heart and who trembles at his word, Isaiah 66, 2. Now back to answering the question, how does he call his elect and unite them to Christ by his uninfluenced sovereign grace alone? Well, he gives wisdom to the weak Base and despise concerning righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Notice this again in verse 30. But by his doing, you are in Christ, Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, which consists of, I might add, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Now, folks, think about what he is saying here, because this is absolutely astounding. The reason we are in Christ is solely because God made it happen. And the first thing that he does is he gives us wisdom. You might say that, that suddenly Proverbs 9 and verse 10 becomes a life-changing reality. Remember, he says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. You might also remember in verse 7 of chapter 1, he said, fools despise wisdom and understand and instruction. So when we come to Christ, when God causes this to happen, suddenly an ignorant nobody of the world becomes among the wisest of the world, among the most noble people on the planet, even though the world does not see it. And instantly that person knows the who, what, how, why, and where of life. Truths that the world considers to be utterly moronic. I mean, after all, they still think that we are sophisticated germs that crawled out of some primordial swamp and eventually turned into matter and then into mammals and then into apes. And now here we are. And some of them will say, well, if there is a God or gods, we're certainly all good enough to make the cut and to be in his or her good graces. And of course, in our culture, everyone goes to heaven if they believe in God. 
You see all of this silliness all the time. Most people are what I would call clueless existentialists. They have no idea about any of this. An existentialist believes that we live in an unfathomable universe and the plight of the individual is to assume ultimate responsibility for acts of free will without any certain knowledge of what is right and wrong or good or bad. And you wonder why people go into a school and shoot up a bunch of kids. Most people just live for themselves, right? They're ruled by the lusts of their flesh, the lusts of their heart. They live their life chasing every dream in their culture. And in our culture, it's the American dream, whatever that is. They chase every dream. They chase after every pleasure. And then they gradually begin to get old and sick and they die. Encouraging, isn't it? Without Christ, it's horribly discouraging. Because they will die and stand before a holy and a sovereign God, guilty and condemned to an eternal death and separation from God, the very God that they ignored and rebelled against. But not so the nobodies that God has chosen. And notice the essential foundational foundational elements of this instant wisdom that is imparted to us, this wisdom that is unattainable through the wisdom of man and through any mode of seeking. Again, verse 30, Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, which consists of righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And by the way, this reminds me of what Jesus said. I am the way, the truth and the life. John 14, 6. Now, First, this wisdom consists of an understanding of, number one, righteousness. Now, in the original language, righteousness carries the idea of of conformity to a standard. In this case, conformity to a holy standard. And it's in its most simple terms, when we come to faith in Christ, God suddenly helps us understand that he is infinitely holy and we are not. That he is God and we are not. That we exist for him, he does not exist for us. And we understand that we are separated, that we are alienated from God. We stand guilty and condemned before his holy bar of justice that demands that all sin be punished. And we know biblically that he demands holiness and righteousness of people who would be rightly related to him. Suddenly we understand righteousness in these terms. We understand that we must have a righteousness foreign to our own. That we have nothing to bring but our sin. We need the righteousness of Christ. We understand 2 Corinthians 5.21. That he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God. Catch it. In him. In the salvation of sinners, we see that God effectively judges sin and he imputes righteousness to those who trust in Christ. Why? So that God can accept us as holy without in any way compromising his essential holiness and righteousness. We suddenly understand that we are justified, as Romans 3 said, says, by his grace as a gift to be received by faith. That we are justified by faith apart from works of the law. <clears throat> and folks, again, this is, this is that great doctrine of justification. A, a legal declaration of righteousness whereby God declares one to be righteous. It's that instantaneous change in one's status before a holy God. Which will result in a gradual transformation that takes place within the inner man of the one who is justified. In fact, the very essence of the gospel is summarized by Paul by casting it as, quote, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, Romans 3.22. So this wisdom that we are given not only includes righteousness, but secondly, sanctification. 
Now, this is closely connected with holiness. In fact, in many passages in the New Testament, the word means salvation. Sanctification means to be set apart from sin unto God. To be set apart for Christian living. It not only includes the immediate act and fact of salvation, but it also includes this this progressive or growing experience of, of greater holiness and less sinfulness in the life of a believer. Sanctification helps us understand this idea of of loving what God loves and hating what he hates. And and we begin to express God's will and fulfill his purposes in our life. In fact, it is pictured in Scripture as a body growing into adulthood in Hebrews five. It's also pictured as a tree bearing fruit in in Psalm one, three and John 15. And this sanctification will naturally result in a person who will manifest it by having a a greater love for God's people, a a concern for personal holiness, a, a love for the word of God, a desire to live for the glory of God, a desire to worship God. You will see that person persevering in the midst of great trials and longing to have fellowship with God's people. This sanctification that we suddenly understand and have a passion for and would include a desire for God's glory in, in our life and, and for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. It will include a burden for the lost, a longing for Christ's return and on and on and goes. But folks, thirdly, this wisdom also con- consists of redemption. The idea that Christ has redeemed us out of the slavery of sin by paying the ransom price by his very blood. In fact, Jesus characterized the mission of his incarnation as a work of ransom of which his life was the ransom price that would be given, quote, in our stead. That many sinners would be brought to freedom. It's interesting in the Old Testament economy, when an Israelite had become so poor that they had they, they, they couldn't pay their bills, they, they eventually had to sell themselves into slavery. But it's fascinating that God made provision in his law for that person's family to redeem that person out of slavery by paying a price. Folks, that is what Christ has done for us. And it's for this reason that Paul can exhort believers to glorify God in your body for you were bought with a price. First Corinthians 6.20. So, beloved, when we come to Christ, this is the wisdom that he gives us. Suddenly these things become alive. Now, we may not be able to articulate them as a skilled theologian might articulate, but we understand the basics. And then we begin to grow in the grace and the knowledge of God. So let this passage sink into your heart. Verse 30, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And by the way, the wisdom of God is readily apparent in in every saint. People won't be able to miss it. Remember James 3 and verse 7 He says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. I'll just leave that there for you to study on your own. So again, Paul is reminding these Corinthian believers that God has called his elect. He's united you you to, you to Christ by his uninfluenced sovereign grace alone. And how does he do it? Well, well he gave wisdom to you people that, that, that are weak and base and despised. Wisdom concerning righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Well, the next question is, why would he do this? And the answer is to save sinners and put his glory on display. And folks, that is also why we exist, to put his glory on display. Again, remember in verse 23, he says, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
Later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6, he's going to say, For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Ephesians 1 and verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. Then he went on to say how he prayed for them, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, beginning in verse 17, the father of glory may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Folks, we all know that the son is the exclusive source of light in our particular realm of the universe. And so God also is the sole source of his glory. And the moon, we know, reflects the glorious light of the sun. And so, too, we as believers are to reflect God's glory. But it's interesting, as we study Scripture, and even as we see alluded to here in this text, God's image in man was, was fractured in the fall. And therefore, sinful human beings refract God's glory, but they don't reflect it back to him. Therefore, they need to be saved. And when they are saved, when they are transformed, they no longer just refract the glory of God. They begin to reflect the glory of God. And finally, the question, where does man go when he dies? Well, the answer is even have either heaven or hell. Dependent upon what they believe about the cross. Again, notice verse 18, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Remember, the whole world can be divided into these two groups of people. One group are those who are perishing, which carries the idea of a continuing process of destruction and separation from God that will never end. And then there's the other group, those who are being saved, a process that that will be completed when we ultimately receive our glorified bodies. And the first group, those who are perishing, believe that what Christ did on the cross is complete foolishness. It has no bearing on their life, no bearing on eternity. But those who are being saved find it to be the power of God. What an amazing reminder an admonition to all those early saints in Corinth. Of the who, what, how, why, and where of life. I want to close with an illustration that I hope will bring this home. It's so sad to see those who are perishing scoff at the wisdom of God and the cross. I was reading an article this week about the diagnosis of clinical depression, also known as major depression, and how it has risen 33% since 2013, according to a new report from the health insurer Blue Cross Blue Shield. Let me just read a little of this. The report, which was based on insurance claims filed by 41 million privately insured Blue Cross Blue Shield members, calls depression the, quote, second most impactful condition on overall health for commercially insured Americans, end quote, behind only high blood pressure. That's because people with depression also tend to have other health issues such as chronic illnesses, substance abuse, and as a result may have more significant health care needs and experience worse health outcomes over time. Some of the literature is already starting to predict that by 2030, depression will be the number one cause for loss of longevity of life, says Dr. Trent Hayward, chief medical officer at Blue Cross Blue Shield Association. Women and men with depression may, on average, lose up to 9.7 years of healthy life, the report says. Depression diagnoses were found to be rising in every demographic, but the uptick has been especially dramatic among young people. Since 2013, rates have spiked by 47% among millennials, by 65% among adolescent girls, 
and by 47% amongst adolescent boys, the report says. Women of any age are also more likely than men to be diagnosed with clinical depression. And then it went on to refer to record numbers of college students are seeking treatment and depression and anxiety. And I'll not take time to give all of the illustrations, but it was so sad. They were, they've, they've included millions of dollars to bring on more counselors for more therapy and to provide things like breathing exercises and to give people uh, a, a playlist to cheer them up that they can click on their little phones and, and to have uh, freer access to clinics for emergency. Uh, Pennsylvania State University allocated roughly $700,000 in additional funding for counseling and psychological services in 2017, citing, quote, a dramatic increase in the demand for care over the past 10 years. And it, it gave a list of everything from yoga to you name it. And, and the, the sad thing is the result is it's not helping. Things are getting worse rather than better. You compare the problems of college students, for example, with the list of Paul's persecutions you could read about in 2 Corinthians 11. No comparison whatsoever. And yet Paul said, momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And you think, my goodness, how could a guy be so foolish to believe such a thing? Well, the reason is because God, by his grace, set his love upon him as he has me and most of you. And gave him wisdom to understand all of these great truths. The who, the what, the how, the why, and the where of life. And folks, all I can do is challenge you. To consider these things and to apply them to your lives. And if you don't know Christ, I plead with you that today will be the day that you acknowledge your sin and confess it and run to the cross and give your life to him. Ask for that forgiveness that he will give so readily. And not only will you be forgiven, but you will receive the righteousness of Christ. And you will be placed in Christ to enjoy all of the blessings that are available to the redeemed in this life and especially in the life to come. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these eternal truths. May they bear much fruit in our lives. We commit it all to you in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.